Welcome to our journey. Our journey toward a more perfect union. Our more perfect union is an experiment, a grand experiment in something we all cherish, democracy. Welcome to our Radio Roundtable with higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people celebrate the journey of America toward a more perfect union. Welcome to A More Perfect Union. I'm Nick Remesong, along with my co-host, Chris Wolf. And joining us this week from our radio roundtable of regulars, we have higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalia Linos, our representative from Beacon Hill, Jeff Roy. And with Jeff, one of our representatives from the Franklin Town Council, Kobe Frangello. And as always, our station manager, Peter Jay, is with us. We're going to be discussing kind of a wide range today. We're going to start with the militarization of local police and a little background on that. Now, the National Defense Authorization Act first passed in 1961. Now, initially, that was uh, that was established to provide adequate funding and oversight of military family life programs, pay benefits, housing, the commissary, everything basic to family life in the military. Now, by 1990, this DOD budget line item was expanded to authorize the transfer of excess DOD personal property to federal and state agencies for use in counter-drug activities, the war on uh, drugs. The so-called 1033 program was established with this legislation. Now, in 1997, largely in response to the North Hollywood shootout in Los Angeles earlier that year, the act was expanded to allow, to allow all law enforcement agencies to acquire DOD property for bona fide law enforcement purposes to assist in arrest and apprehension missions. As a result, between 1997 and 2014, $5.1 billion in military hardware was transferred from the DOD to local law enforcement agencies, $449 million in 2013 alone. DOD properties, which I've been referring to, it covers everything from clothing, meals ready to eat, and armored vehicles, automatic weapons, anything that the DOD might, manu might use or manufacture. So having said this, we have law enforcement agencies now with access to heavy weaponry. Is this something that assists in keeping the peace or is this law enforcement on steroids? Anybody with an initial thought on this? Well, it speaks to the notion that generally we've seen police departments becoming more militarized over time, mm -hmm. not just physically with access to items from DOD, but in terms of a mindset, that is the thing that's disconcerting. And I think that is where the roots of sentiments like defund the police sort of spring from. And what we, of course, really need is reform the police. And this notion of forming elite units that are garbed up and, and kitted up 
with with uh, SWAT style equipment, armored personnel carriers, etc., is a disconcerting certainly witness you know this week in memphis tennessee you know the ongoing saga of of tyree nichols you know back earlier in the month of january he was stopped for reckless driving so let me frame this a little bit i have before me the tennessee code from the department of motor vehicles with respect to defining reckless driving a any person who drives a vehicle with willful or wanton disregard for the safety of persons or property, commits reckless driving. Fair enough. It's a sentence. B, a person commits an offense of reckless driving who drives a motorcycle with the front tire raised off the ground in willful and wanton disregard for the safety of persons or property on any public street. And it goes on for six more sentences about motorcycles. Nothing about the car, no other detail. And then finally, C, A violation of this section is a class B misdemeanor. So it begs the question that we have this elite street crimes unit, the Scorpion unit, dealing with a traffic violation. That to me is a disconnect, a big one. And there is apparently no footage available with respect to what happened or documentation of whatever reckless driving may have taken place. And given how the testimony of the officers really unraveled pretty quickly against what we saw in the videos. It begs to the veracity of whatever they're claiming happened prior to the videos with respect to whatever offense that they were addressing. So this you know, is baffling to me that something would trigger that type of a response. I leave it there. Thoughts? The examples that we just, oh. you know, talked about were from, you know, another state. And, you know, folks may be wondering, well, what's going on here in Massachusetts? Well, sure, some of that equipment has found its way to Massachusetts. But um, I don't know how many of you may recall, but, uh, you know, back a few years ago, uh, the legislature took a a real close examination uh, at policing and uh, did the examination of that policing in conjunction with police chiefs and police associations and came up with a major set of reforms, uh, you know, historic reforms uh, to policing in Massachusetts. And, and that led to uh, the establishment of a, a commission and a licensing process and a whole host of uh, measures that we looked at to, to determine you know, what the role of uh, policing is in Massachusetts and how we could uh, control bad behavior and where there are less intrusive means of doing that. And I will say, you know, having served in the legislature during that period, it was extremely controversial. And I know that, uh, you know, people were, uh, you know, if you stood on the side of reforming policing, somehow you were labeled as anti-police. And uh, I will say emphatically that uh, nothing could be further from the truth. We were trying to improve policing in Massachusetts and, and improve the professionalism of policing in Massachusetts. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a difficult area to navigate, but it's an important area because police have the ability to stop you, take you into custody, to 
uh, charge you with offenses and take away the very liberties that you are promised under the Constitution of the United States. So it is important that that aspect of life be treated very carefully, particularly when you're talking about arresting liberties of an individual. So I, I just wanted to put in context where we have been and how we have looked at this in Massachusetts, because it is a, it's an, an important and very concerning issue when it comes to taking liberties. Let me add to that a sense of history, because even though, Pete, you laid out the acquisition of the military-style equipment, when we start to talk about the Black community, and in this particular instance, and in many of the other similar instances in the last number of years, and the honesty here would take us back hundreds of years, actually. Absolutely. The context of this is not a singularity, nor can we, I think, ignore the fact that the Black community has been, pardon me, my uh, my emotional thoughts around this are uh, are quite deep and quite sad, because the Black community has been separated by infrastructure. I don't know if any of you recall, just a few weeks ago, there was a call for some revision of some of the infrastructure plans, because historically, barriers have been built, like interstate highways, inner city uh, rapid movements, towers, and impediments to movement circling the Black community. This goes back to the 1950s. There's also a long history of military-style equipment getting into the Black community, more so than other communities. Again, going back to the 1950s, I don't know if any of you remember the urban assault vehicles that were very popular in the 1960s, especially in communities that suffered uh, what were then called riots and disturbances. And then there was also the idea that there were needs for these special units, some of them in communities that couldn't demonstrate that need, some of them in communities that could demonstrate that need. And I'm thinking specifically about the special weapons and tactics units, the SWAT units, which again go back to the 1960s and primarily were products of what was then called urban violence and the weaponization, quote unquote, of criminals. This particular instance with Tyree is extremely, I think, important for us to really take heart. The police reported uh, their reports after the incident didn't match the video at all. In other words, their reports were all fabricated. The incident itself was basically a public lynching of a gentleman who, for the most part, died without even knowing what he had done to deserve or even be stopped by these officers. And I think the idea that police reform could do any more than set up laws to allow us to punish 
the real question is what kind of culture, what kind of country empowers people who are there to protect us, to perpetrate this kind of atrocity against an individual and think and think that they can then with impunity get away with it, even in the face of the cameras. They knew the cameras were on, and yet they still went through this particular atrocity against another fellow human being. I cannot understand how anyone, anyone could think that there's any kind of rightness or legality to what these folks did. And I think Memphis has shown us that justice can be swift in situations like this. And I hope that one of the other things that we're beginning to learn is that even though these events go on, does it take a video in order for us to really bring these kinds of acts to justice? What would have happened if there were no videos? What would have happened to these individuals if there were not videos showing what happened? And this is what the Black community has suffered for hundreds of years. This is systemic. It is perpetrated with intent. And I am not only saddened by it, but I'm also in fear of how we are deteriorating. And Jeff, with all due respect to the legislature in Massachusetts, I think we've done a great job in terms of at least codifying how they're going to be held accountable. But the next problem is, how are we training these folks to think differently, to act differently in terms of the equal justice that they ought to be out there trying to trying to pursue for all of our citizens, not just for some and not just in certain communities, but for all of our citizens. I just wanted to quickly chime in that uh, part of that police reform effort was extensive training for police throughout the Commonwealth and having a standard uh, bit of training to make sure that folks were attentive and attuned to the myriad of issues they face uh, in policing. And uh, just to go back to the controversial nature, and I, I think, Michael, I believe you were standing by my side when I was accosted by uh, an officer. It wasn't, uh, wasn't a local police officer, but we were standing at the polls in 2020 when uh, an officer from outside of Franklin uh, approached me at the polls and was in my face and unbeknownst to me was displaying uh, a weapon at the time. And it's incredible how controversial it was to put in standards in place to make sure that, um, you know, our police were adhering to professional standards. And I'll never forget that day. And I remember you uh, calming me down uh, right after it happened. And helping you observe what I must observe all the time and in, in this particular instance, Jeff, that's a great example. You were not necessarily aware of, but those of us who are from the Black community, who live in the Black community, who are people of color, we have to pay attention to such strict details when there is a person of power or authority interacting with us. And you're absolutely right, Michael. As a parent, you know, a parent of white children, 
I don't have to have, and I'm going to cry too, because this is so difficult, but that difficult conversation that, you know, moms of black boys have at five or six or seven about how to engage, you know, our police, you know, my kids will be safe. They, I tell them to go to the police if they are lost or something, but that's not what other moms have to say. And that's difficult. And that's difficult. And I want to, you know, going back to sort of this conversation, Khalil Gibran Muhammad, who's a professor of race and public policy at Harvard, said something, he was interviewed by the BBC, and I'll, I'll quote him. He said, the Stanford prison experiment tells us that bad things happen in places built to do bad things. Anyone who dons the uniform is more likely on average to engage in abusive behavior directed towards a Black person. And, you know, I think Brooklyn went through an effort on reimagining public safety, basically saying, is the police department really the place and a militarized police department, going back to the beginning of this conversation, that has, you know, more guns and more arms and, and weapons that are not supposed to be in our cities, does a militarized, really hyper-masculine, I would say, you know, department really, uh, you know, and looking at the movies that we watch and the violence that we see, you know, is that what we want to be empowering? What do we mean when we want public safety, when we see that people with, you know, mental health challenges are being killed? in Cambridge and in Newton, uh, because they're in a crisis mode and the police shows up and they are misdiagnosing the situation. So, and obviously this is, has a huge racial component, as Michael said, you know, it's, it's not, you know, it's not that white people are not killed at the hands of the police. And actually, if you're with them, you know, mentally ill, you are likely to be, to be harmed. But the, you know, the way structural racism works in this country, and it doesn't matter if you're a white police officer or a black police officer, it's the institution, the way we are empowering people to carry guns and take control and, you know, and sort of, yeah, and sort of try to control a situation through force rather through other measures. And yeah, I've, I mean, I haven't watched the videos and for me, it would be very difficult. Um, I, I think, it's important to be having these conversations, but it also feels like we've been having them over and over again. And and I'm angry and I'm heartbroken. And yeah, Michael, thank you for sort of pointing out where we we don't notice the same things. We don't have to have the same conversations where uh, we can take for granted that the police is there to protect us, not to harm us. And um, so I, I do believe that we need to be reimagining public safety more broadly, not just reforming police departments. Natalia, your mind uh, went to a very similar place as, as mine. This is Phoebe. It's good, good to be here with everyone. I, uh, I think a lot about the, the Stanford prison experiment in terms of, you know, randomly assigning people and having the very, very uh, briefest uh, labeling of authority and non-authority and how quickly any person uh, can um, a little more um, violent in the protection of their uh, status. And I don't think any of us uh, are above that. And that's a baseline piece to, you know, when we put, you know, when we empower people uh, as uh, the rep has spawned uh, to be able to infringe on, on uh, people's liberty. You add into that uh, decades of um, reinforced biases, Certain people, you add into that uh, tools and toolkit that is more and more uh, violent and, and enables easier violence. 
my, my anecdotal experiences, so I, I don't know if this is representative, but in communicating with officers that I'm, I'm uh, friendly with, the media that they're sharing is not the media. Typically, I'm usually, if I engage, if I see media around a police encounter, uh, it's more often than not around something like this, you know, a, a abuse of the police system. What they're seeing more often is police officers who are threatened or injured or losing their lives from this. And so that's reinforcing that this notion that everyone's a threat or everyone's a potential threat. Um, and and that's, a, that's a large part of the training is that, you know, anyone could be a threat and you, and you want to take uh, the utmost of caution because anyone's a threat, which is, which is very true. You know, and, and that's like a, a scary part uh, for them. And so when I think about possible uh, solutions beyond accountability, which, which we certainly need, uh, I, I'm proud of Franklin for being one of the first communities to try a pilot program to have mental health clinicians uh, on the force that responded uh, to um, mental health calls, unarmed uh, mental health trained clinicians. Uh, that we've been doing that for five years. We're one of the first communities in, in Massachusetts, and it's had a fantastic response from the officers, uh, from the residents. Um, you know, just to be able to meet with someone who's trained with some other toolkit than um, you know assumed violence. Uh, has, you know, that sparks, um, you know, some possibilities. The other one is these opportunities for uh, threat, right? That, that the most dangerous thing for a police officer is our, it's both the most dangerous thing for a police officer and the resident. Why are we, you know, encouraging as many uh, of those? You know, if there's a, uh, a small traffic violation, can we take a picture of the license plate, send them something in the, in the mail and not have to go through that whole song and dance? Those are the sort of uh, places, you know, the alternatives to that uh, confrontation is where I see a little more hope for uh, group. Well, I think part of, of course, it's all, there are advances that have been made and there have been programs that have been put in place here in in uh, the small suburban communities in Massachusetts. And in Massachusetts, we are very fortunate to have a, a somewhat forward-looking legislature, but there are just too many large and volatile pockets in this country where this type of behavior is is tolerated and encouraged. Training is the only, I mean, I think that's that's the only hope we have right now is to retrain, refocus. And part of the big focus is, is this law enforcement or is it keeping the peace? What's the function of the police force? They the, the the police force is drawn from the general population. It's it's my neighbors, it's friends, it's people I grew up with. And how do we determine the qualification of someone to go about armed, unconcealed armed, and wearing a uniform that marks them, that person as someone who can potentially take away your rights for more momentarily. I'm not saying that that is what any police officer goes out there with the intent to do, to take away someone's rights, to abuse their rights and to deny them the due process of law. But the idea that a police officer goes out there armed with a little bit of knowledge about this, that and the other uh, comes up with the, you know, the 
the old saw, a, a little learning. It's not little knowledge, but it's a little learning is a dangerous thing. They need, I think, we need to rethink how a police officer is trained anywhere in this country. What is the general mindset that you establish and how do we how do we do that? That's what I would posit as something to at least start with. Well, I think you make a very important point. It is about the leadership and it is about the training because there's a whole other community of American society that has um, faced far worse dangers and uh, responded with far less violence. And that's uh, combat veterans in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, and, you know, I'm close to a lot of um, uh, the military uh, community and veteran community. And the responses you often get from people who have seen combat and been exposed to danger is that they're aghast at the rules of engagement that the police follow in this country, which they would have been arrested for if they'd tried to do the similar kinds of things in a combat zone. So uh, it's astonishing that they've taken, uh, the police here in some communities have taken the military equipment, but not imported the the training, the leadership, and the just even the basic rules of engagement that are uh, observed by veterans. Obviously, there's always going to be exceptions, but by and large, um, much more um, honored than breached by veterans uh, serving abroad. Hey, Chris, do you think you could comment a bit about policing in Great Britain? And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know a great deal about it, but I was always under the understanding and belief that they didn't even carry weapons. Um, wonder if you could clarify for that and give us some thoughts about how it works over there. Uh, well, you're... you're <laughs> Quite right. The whole concept of policing in Britain was created as a non-violent and a non-lethal force because prior to the creation of the police forces in the 1830s, uh, the only uh, resource available to support the civil power in case of a disturbance was the military. And so they had a lot of um, riots that were put down with military force in the 1810s, 1820s, and they thought, well, this is not a good idea. So that's when the bobbies come out with your uh, truncheons, uh, which are like a little small club, the pocket-sized club that you can have. And th that tradition has continued today, but with the, um, from uh, about the last 40 years, 50 years, with the onset of terrorism from uh, either Irish nationalism or from uh, Islamic-inspired movements, you the, the police are still unarmed generally, but they all have firearms in the back of the, in the trunk of the vehicles just in case of uh, emergencies and there's the so there's a, it's a very different culture there but that's not to say that there isn't a similar response from communities of color to abusing abu um, abusive behavior by police police personnel and um more uh, typically the something that's got even wider coverage was a couple of very spectacular cases that have come to light in the last year of uh, individual policemen becoming either uh, serial rapists or murderers. So there's um, there's always going to be problems with, as you say, with people in positions of power. So very different overall, but where like real security is concerned, like at airports and um, important things, you're going to have armed police. But yes, as a rule, your community policeman will only have access to fire power as a, as a backup. An emergency countermeasure. Yes. So the old saw about stop or I'll shout stop again uh, is um, 
they're still true in, in some respects. <laughs> the same is true in Greece. The police do not carry guns. Um, you know, but I think the broader question there and what people say is that the reason the US um, you know, requires police to carry guns is because the average person in the US carries a gun, um, or not the average person. But I mean, I think it's really important to to make sure that people are aware of the statistics of the U.S. being such a far outlier. I'm looking at a small arms survey from 2017. The estimate number of civilian firearms per 100 persons in the United States is 120. Like there are more guns than there are people. Um, obviously, it's not that everybody has a gun, but that some people have many, many guns. But that's simply not the case in Europe. Um, it's not, you know, the U.K. and Greece are far, far, you know, no country comes close to that number, but the UK and Greece would be much, much further down the list. And therefore, you know, it wouldn't be an unequal, you know, conflict in the sense. So in some ways, I think fundamental to the the problem is the the broader conversation around guns in this country and, and why we have so many of them. I also think about, uh, you know, I've met with uh, police on many issues. And I recall meeting with an officer uh, at one point uh, who was talking to me about the amount and the weight of the equipment that they actually have to carry on their belt. And I believe it was somewhere between 50 and 65 pounds of equipment that they would wear on their bodies every day. I mean, it obviously included a gun, uh, it included uh, uh, some sort of a club. It includes uh, a tasing device. And, uh, you know, I, I actually tried the thing on and I was like, how the hell do you do your job, you know, walking around with all of this uh, equipment weighing you down? You know, so that's a small sample. Uh, and this conversation began with uh, large military type equipment being added to that already uh, large arsenal uh, of equipment. And so it's interesting to hear the uh, the European comparisons uh, when I think of that experience lugging around all that equipment. One of the things that I'd like to do here is um, pivot a little bit uh, in that the uh, Memphis police chief very eloquently raised a point early on before all the video was revealed. And she noted the fact that while certainly racial component is a very real thing, uh, you know, you know, say her name, Breonna Taylor, you know, George Floyd, we know the names and there are others as well. But in this case, it also speaks to institutional bias, uh, deeply ingrained institutional bias, which regardless of the color of the police officer's skin, the color of the supposed perpetrator or victim, call them what you will, uh, does come into play with respect to bias, institutional bias. And I think that there's a larger issue, which in my mind connects to a broader form of education and what's going on in Florida right now with AP placement courses and you know, the diminution of black history, which is very much a part of U.S. history. And the fact that you know part of our past, there are people who seek to stamp it out and quite literally whitewash things that have happened, which are important to understand. And I think that over the long term, you know, the as as we get 
the moral arc to bend towards justice. This education is very much a part of, of I think, what's important. And the fact that there are education and history deniers, this is, I think, an important uh, route of continuing to perpetuate this notion of institutional bias. Uh, that's a real concern, I think, as well. Well, history is my passion, and um, the distortion of history is a long and uh, cherished American tradition going back at least 200 years with um, there was a um, the deliberate manufacturing of um, origin myths after the American Revolution and the, the Constitution being adopted. And We've raised it to a sport. Exactly. And in particular, you have Parson Weems, uh, this one individual who uh, invented a whole slew of traditions. He, in fact, is the chap who made up the idea about George Washington chopping down the cherry tree, and uh, none of which has any basis in any kind of reality. Um, but the whole idea was to inculcate a kind of a, a false sense of unity and uh, purpose uh, in a new nation. Um, for for obvious reasons you know, that you want to make people have a common origin myth and a common uh, 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 ideal about what it is that they're you know the American experiment is about, um, but that uh, that has long meant that uh, the truth has been distorted or suppressed or or changed uh, for the sake of social cohesion. Dr. Mike is someone who's involved on a daily basis with education in this country. Uh, do you have any feelings about any any guidance you might offer with regard to how people can be retrained, how someone can be a, a, an, or an entity, a group such as the police can be trained to deal more effectively as a partner with those on the, who, those who live in the neighborhoods that they police? Do we start this on a grassroots level in the elementary schools? Is this something that we have to inculcate very young in people? Dr. Linos, you're involved in education also. Is there, particularly with regard to your background in public health, I mean, certainly that something along the lines of police involvement in the neighborhoods has got to be something that touches on public health. Figures and stats can all, you know, are all very well, but how do we deal with the individual who goes into a neighborhood fully armed, dressed for effectively dressed for battle, comes face to face with uh, someone in their group, their neighborhood, whatever, whoever, whomever they're they're face to face with? How can we get them to immediately connect and or de-escalate? I don't have an answer. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think if I did uh, yeah. be out there giving giving talks, I mean, I don't. You know, Jeff talked a little bit about trainings and, you know, individual level kind of, you know, what we can do to educate individuals and train individuals. And I'm much more of a, as a social epidemiologist, I think about systems and, you know, how do we create the conditions, the social conditions, mm -hmm. the conditions to reduce the chance of, of violence happening in the first place. And so, you know, there have been these technological fixes, like put a body camera on and, you know, that will reduce it. But obviously, as Michael mentioned early on, that didn't seem to deter anyone, even though they knew they were on film, in part because the culture is such that in a moment of of crisis, and I, I heard, and I don't know if this is true, I heard someone saying that the police are told to say things like, you're not cooperating and to yell it out, to yell out these like code terms that will protect them in some way, um, even if the person is pretty much cooperating or so, you know, if we are to think about systems, not individual level kind of behaviors, I do think 
you know, we need to to talk as, you know, honestly about how structural racism has played out in this country in terms of opportunities, in terms of not only vis-a-vis the police, you know, in the healthcare sector where I know it well, we know that there are unequal opportunities that you show up in the hospital and as, you know, a black woman who may be in a lot of pain, you might be characterized as aggressive and uh, causing, you know, you know, you might be complaining at the same level as, as a white woman, but your label is aggressive. You might not get the same level of pain medication. You might not be supported. You might be, you know, tied to your bed. There's violence that happens in lots of settings. We know in kindergartens and schools that young black boys are disciplined more aggressively by teachers um, than say young, you know, white boys or white girls. And so I I feel like the conversations around the violence, the daily violence that um, people of color, especially black men experience in the United States is one that requires uh, a re-education of everyone. It's not gonna be done, you know, one by one. Sorry, I took it a little off, off topic, but I think these, this is where my- Not at all, not at all. Because I think when we're discussing this type of thing, I mean, we start with the militar- militarization of the police and we're into individual acts of violence and uh, abuse of power. I don't think there's any real constrainment on the on the topics that we can discuss on this this level, and in this in view of what's been going on, and in view of uh, what indeed continues to go on. Again, the the denial of the attempt to deny the fact that the the, the in systemic racism that exists in this country. Uh, by just saying you can't teach it, you can't talk about it, you we're not going to fund anything, and uh, we will state by state, which is what I assume is some someone's plan out there, rob you of the right to to investigate this sort of thing. This is a, this is a highly emotional subject for me. Also, I mean, <laughs> I don't sit anywhere near in the position that uh, Dr. Michael Walker Jones sits in or that uh, people I've known sit in most of my life. I've been unduly, undeservedly blessed just by an accident of birth. I never had to compete with people outside of uh, my my race and my upbringing, but, and which, you know, robbed others of their right to compete, to compete for what I had. You know, it's, it's important I think for each one of us to put in context our tie to Ty, uh, Tyree. Um, I can't tell you how in the last week I have so much related to him as a young man. He's uh, had a job, had a family, was involved in his community, driving down the street, trying to get to his mom's house. And it stopped. And there have been some additional revelations this week because these five officers were not the only ones that he interacted with exactly so we still don't have the tire the entire story he was tased which means this guy was hit with pretty close to about forty thousand volts to decapacitate him and then he's kicked and beaten and again he had no idea uh, and the reason I can relate to him is I can't tell you how many times when I personally have been stopped by police 
that there is a fear that goes through you. Is this person a reasonable person? What am I being stopped for? Uh, and I freely admit that there are times when, for example, I'm on the highway and I'm driving 80 and a 70. Okay, I know why I'm getting stopped. And so, but even at that, you're still afraid because you don't know what kind of day that person is having. And the unfortunate part is, is that this is in an urban area. This is not on the highway. This is not a, and that's the thing too, that we all have to be cognizant of. The police put down anything they want on their report. And the courts are basically prone to believe the cop. So it's important for us then to understand that citizens already feel, especially in the black community, and I have to keep emphasizing that, that in the black community, folks, people feel the fear that once I engage in the system, the system does not favor me. It's not just the cop. It's the entire system doesn't favor me. And I can tell you as a, uh, as a person of reasonable means, as a person who has had the fortunate opportunity to go to school and raise a family, even when I go into the system, there are times when I feel oppressed by the system. And it could be something as simple as just going in for, oh, you didn't pay all of your tax bill. And I don't know whether that's something that's personal against me or is that a systemic piece. With my age, I have come to try to think that it's, well, it's just part of the, the system. But there are so many of us in, in, in the communities that we, we just can't come to that conclusion. The system is against us. And I don't say that hyperbolically, and I don't say that with, with, with a lot of, oh, he's just trying to be a leftist or whatever you, people out there may call us. No, I'm just trying to be realistic because I've seen this through my grandmother, my great-great-grandfather, my grandmother, my father, all of my brothers and sisters and my nieces and nephews. I see it. And Tyler has really opened up a, a pain inside of me that this young man trying to do nothing more than get to his mom's house for what he thought was a very normal evening. And he ends up getting lynched over it. Your point earlier, Pete, that this whole incident is an indication of some systemic larger piece, I think is right on. And here's where we have to go. Nick, as you were saying, we have to take a look at what's our relationship between me and Tyree? What are our similarities? What are our differences? And we all have to judge not only where we are individually on this, but then for the greater good, what am I willing to do to try to change it? Am I willing to hold our police, our legislative members, our community leaders accountable for equal justice, for a society where we have to have some kind of reasonable, some kind of, where we have to have some kind of reasonable expectation that we will all be treated equally. Uh, and here is Black History Month, where technically we're supposed to be ferreting out, well, what are the what are the expectations that we as citizens can have 
And let me ask you, my friends, on this on this panel, on this day, when we're talking about this deep emotional topic, what can we do? What can how can things change and help this old guy out here? Because I keep seeing this over and over and over again. I started with the idea that there are the infrastructure impediments. And you go to a city like Memphis, and you will see that there are roads that literally wall in the Black community. I mean that literally. If you go to Memphis, Tennessee, or Nashville, Tennessee, there are literally walls or infrastructure impediments that wall in the Black community. But yet, we get divided. We don't look at the systemic nature of this. We still have. Uh, I just read a report this week. We still have redlining. Absolutely. That's going on. Even as we speak, we have people who have, and this is not just in the Black community, but overall, we have the inequity, the, the economic inequities that exacerbate these problems. So what do we do, folks? What do we do? I want to zoom back a little bit here and in sync with what you're saying, Dr. Mike. I think that we have to have a better appreciation of all that we do, all that we say. You know, what's the biblical quote? It's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes forth from a man that defiles him. What we say, what we do, what our output is as human beings, individually, collectively, is a big deal. And this notion of suppressing words, language, history, suppressing the truth by denying Black history outright or limiting it to something that is episodically you know, minimal, you know, a blip on the radar, that doesn't serve us well. We need to have the unadorned truth. And all of that comes down to the right words. I hearken back to Governor Deval Patrick. He said, I will not engage in the politics of fear because fear is poisonous. All through history, it has been used to hold back progress and limit fairness. Only hope defeats fear. It always has. But his opponent's dismissive point, and he heard it from her staff regularly, is that all I have to offer are words, just words. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, just words. We have nothing to fear but fear itself, just words. Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Just words. And among the greatest of these, I have a dream. Just words. He went on to say, let me say it before you do. I am no Dr. King, no Kennedy, no FDR. I'm not Jefferson. But I do know that the right words spoken from the heart with conviction, with a vision of a better place and a faith in the future are a call to action. Very powerful. And I think there's another phrase that was reprised from Memphis. And I think about this as Tyree was lying there saying, what did I do? Which could have been followed up with, I am a man. Exactly. What did I do? I am a human being. What did I do? It's a sad way to start, I think, the month. Black History Month, it's a sad testament to where we are. I not only grieve for that family, I feel their pain. I relate to Tyree as a man. I feel for him 
in the loss of his future. I hope that those who are listening to us today can pick up on the fact that this can't become normal. This can't be a part of that whole litany of say their name. This can't be the way that we see the beginning of the 21st century. We've got to do better. We've got to have a way of sustaining our society with dignity, with equality, with social justice, and an expectation that all of us, all of us have worth and value as human beings, and that our society is trying to do better than any other society that's here now or that came before us. And it's important for us to, to call out, I, I, uh, I'm going to say something now that may sound a little controversial, but We've got to call out the indignity of a governor who thinks that by disguising history or by ignoring history, we make the now, today, and our tomorrows better. The man is out of space. I don't know where he's coming from. I can't even believe that people would support such a politician who wants to deny the things that we've already done and then limit the teaching of our own history. That seems absolutely ridiculous to me, but it contributes to the thinking that, oh, if we only have stronger police forces, we will eliminate crime. That's how these five police officers, in total 11 people, perpetrated an injustice against a man who didn't even know why he got stopped. So I hope we can do better as a country. At the least, the small saving grace is that the and body wanna, cameras and all the other video cameras yeah. reveal the truth. And Natalia, thank you for your, for not only your openness, but also your, your compassion and love as a mother, because I think you epitomize what, Tyree's mother is going through. Yeah, I think when you asked us to to see who we associate with this in the story, it is the mother and the mothers of so many other um, black men and and the mothers of so many black boys who are my friends who are literally scared. So I don't know. You asked, what can we do? It's it's at this moment I feel that there isn't an easy solution, and it is obviously political. There's decisions. You know, you want to shift hearts and minds. But if you can't even, as you said, tell stories, the real history, if you're being blocked and, you know, it feels like it will be an upward battle. And so I join those who are mourning and, uh, you know, make a personal commitment to do what, what I can, knowing that that's not enough. It's not about what one individual will do. But again, Michael, I, I want to thank you for for leading us through this conversation and calling on us to have the introspection. I think one thing I'd like to wrap up with is that I believe that fear, uh, the, the over, the overweening power of fear is something that needs to be addressed because there are those who are fear mongers. And in order to maintain their own sense of power, they, which is fostered by, fears real and imagined, 
they must make others fear what they fear. And I think that's what's been going on in this country now for far, far too long. We always look for a common enemy that we can all fight. Well, the we has become smaller and smaller, and the common enemy, so to speak, has become larger and larger. And I think that it's time that we realize, as uh, Walt Kelly said, <laughs> now it's gone out of my head. I'm sorry. But uh, what was we it? Have, we have seen the enemy and they is us. They is us. Yes. Every one of us who lives a life where we nurture and cherish this anger and this fear of everything around us. And we seek out others who will support this this fear and this nurturing and this kernel of something that has been driving this country for far too long and has re-sparked itself. So I think perhaps we can wrap up. Are there any other last words? Anything else I can uh, we can address? But I think maybe we will say that another more perfect union hour has flown by and we will say goodbye until next week now if if you really would like to weigh in on our discussions we do we do encourage you to let us hear from you you can email us at info at franklin.tv that's i-n-f-o at franklin.tv if you enjoyed our discussion let us know and again if you disagree all the more reason to let us know now you can also share or listen to this program Excuse me. You can also share or listen to this program or any of our past episodes anytime. Our podcasts are available online at our website, wfpr.fm. So for our guests, Dr. Natalie Alinos, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, our representative Jeff Roy, town council member Kobe Frangello, my co-host Chris Wolf. And all, as always, our station manager, Peter J. I'm Nick Remesong. Thanks for listening and joining our shared journey toward a more perfect union. This is Franklin Public Radio.